Good morning, church. It is so great to be with you. Welcome to those in you in the room with me, to those who are watching or listening online, wherever you're joining us. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, welcome to Abundant Life. We're a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. My name is Jeremy, the lead pastor here, and today we're wrapping up a series that we've been in, and so I wanna encourage you to get your journals out, get your Bibles out. If you brought your Bible, we're gonna be in Luke chapter 16 as we can uh, conclude this series that we've been in today. And so we've been in uh, chapters 15 and 16 uh, throughout this series. Last week, we, we took a break and we had Summit Weekend uh, with Danielle Strickland. Anybody appreciate Danielle being here with us? Man, that was an incredible weekend. If you missed that, you need to go online and watch it. Uh, you go to Facebook, go to YouTube, and uh, you see our channel. That was absolutely incredible how God used her and used her voice uh, to really light a fire in our community. And so I encourage you to, to be a part of that. And today we're wrapping up this series that we've been in, and, and I get to preach on dead people today, and so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, these are all three stories that Jesus tells, and, and Luke puts them back to back to back in chapters 15 and 16. And so we've been looking at these three stories that don't normally get grouped together and ask asking the question, what do they have in common? And what themes should we be getting from them? And, and, and how should we take that today? And, and hopefully, if nothing else, if you've been with us in this series, you're realizing we are not as logical as we think we are when it comes to how we manage our stuff. And, and I've tried to illustrate that in a number of ways. And, and I think Jesus is getting at the heart level as to why we are not as logical as we think we are. But the reality is we're, we're just not as, as logical as we might want to believe. And, and as I was thinking about that, I remember something that Jerry Seinfeld once said. And I, this is from one of his standups. And I think this is an incredible point, but it illustrates a lot of what we've been talking about this last month. So here's what he says. There are many things that we can point to that prove that the human being is not smart. The helmet is my personal favorite. The fact that we had to invent the helmet. Now, why did we invent the helmet? Well, because we were participating in many activities that were cracking our heads. We looked at the situation, we chose not to avoid those activities, but to just make little plastic hats so that we can continue our head-cracking lifestyles. The only thing dumber than the helmet is the helmet law, the point of which is to protect a brain that is functioning so poorly, it's not even trying to stop the cracking of the head that it's in. <laughs> if you follow that logic, I think that's great. The, the point is, instead of saying, hey, this might damage me, we think, hey, let's build something so that I can keep doing this. And that really describes how we treat our money, how we treat our stuff. Hey, I don't want to avoid something that might be bad. Let me see how far I can go and how I can pull this off. And, and we're looking at a number of ways that I believe Jesus is inviting us to a higher standard. To go, look, there's a better way to live. There's a better way to manage your stuff. And if we will allow this to sink in, I, I think we'll see it. So join me in Luke chapter 16. We're gonna begin reading in verse 19. And, and like we've been seeing throughout this series, this is a, a story time with Jesus. He's gonna gather us around. He's gonna tell us a tale and we're gonna walk away and go, what do we do with this story today? So here's what Jesus says as he tells us a new story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Okay, again, this is Jesus making up incredible details to a story and you have the guy that's got everything. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat 
what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him off to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. Great setup to a story here. And so we begin, we have a story about two dead people. Come on, people, this is where I'm getting this from, all right? We have two dead people. You got a rich man, you have a beggar, they both die. That is the setup of Jesus' story here. Now, I'm gonna give you my opinion on the story right up front, and so you can see where I'm gonna go with this, and you are welcome to disagree with me, okay? Here's my opinion. I do not think that the point of this story is to teach us about heaven and hell. Now, most of the time we read this story, we preach the story, we hear the story, it's in that context. In fact, after our Thursday night service, uh, one of our pastors came up to him and said, I accepted Jesus because I was so afraid of this story. And so I was like, wow, okay. Um, so that's how this story is normally used. But here, here's my belief, and again, you're welcome to disagree. I don't think it's the point of the story because the point of the story is a rich man who's got everything and a poor man who is suffering. And if you look at it in light of the previous stories that come right before it, you see yet another example of Jesus talking about someone who does not handle what they have well. And so I would encourage you to see it from this light. Now remember, this is a made up story. So Jesus is not telling you, here's exactly how this is gonna play out for you. He's making things up. And and we don't know why he chose the details he chose. We don't know why he names the beggar Lazarus. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus. There's no correlation that we know of, but but maybe there's something there. Uh, The rich man is not named. He's just kind of this uh, theoretical person. But then you have this setup of these two people who are polar opposites when it comes to what they have. Now we're quick to rush to, okay, well, yeah, this is about heaven and hell, but I, I want you to see what this has to do with how we live right now. As the theologian Miguel de la Torre says it, although the message of life after death is important, the real message that the vast majority of those living in oppression hunger for is life prior to death. So here's my theory that I've been working on. I think the more comfortable you are now, the more satiated your desires are now, the more you are interested in eternity because you've got everything you want now. So you shift your focus to eternity and making sure what you have now is going to continue for eternity. But the less you have now, the the more you hunger and thirst for a reality that is not here now, the less you care about eternity because you wanna know what does this mean for me now? How is this gonna shape my reality now, and again, I don't know where you'd fall in that, but uh, we, we tend to have different ways that we focus on eternity versus right now. There's a popular evangelistic technique, and uh, maybe you've, you've used this, or maybe you've had this used on you, uh, where you go to someone, and before you can tell them about the good news, you gotta convince them of the bad news. And so the question goes, hey, do you know if you died tonight where you would go? And you know, maybe this has been done to you, and I've seen it done for many years, and usually scares the person. Like, what do you mean? You're going to hell if you die tonight. You know my, my response to that? Uh, do you know if you die tonight, where are you gonna go? Here's my response. What if I wake up tomorrow? What then? What if I don't die? What if I wake up? What does this gospel mean tomorrow if I'm not in eternity with Jesus, if I'm right here? Does this gospel, does the gospel you're presenting to me have anything to do with my day tomorrow? Because if it doesn't, I don't really care about a theoretical gospel that someday might take effect. 
And what we realize is that Jesus taught in such a way that it was not like, yeah, someday this will get around. He taught very much in the here and now that then goes into eternity. And so I would encourage you, if you read the story and you immediately jump to, yeah, someday in eternity, you're missing the here and now part of this story. And so it's a contrast. You have this this beggar who is named Lazarus, and, and you would define his life by one of suffering. This guy is literally suffering in a variety of ways. And right next to him is the rich man. And you might describe the rich man as just being numb. He's numb to reality. He's numb to his own condition. He's numb to the, the reality that there's a beggar just you know, feet away from him, and yet he cannot see him, nor does he realize he has the ability to help him. But death in this story is going to reverse the trajectories of both of them. And we get to see how this plays out. So go to verse 23. Uh, talks about the rich man. In Hades, where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away. Again, this would be an iconic person if you're a Jew. Father Abraham is an iconic you know, person in the story. With Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. So again, the, the story arc, Jesus reverses the, the trajectory of both of these guys. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, again, if we go and try to keep within the story, go, what is the point of this? I want you to notice something shocking. And maybe you've read this story before and you've never noticed this, but here's what I want you to, to, to take note of. Notice that the rich man still expects Lazarus to serve him. Even in death, he, he, he still expects Lazarus to serve him. Not only that, but he doesn't even ask Lazarus himself. He asks Abraham to make Lazarus serve him. You see, death has changed their experience here, but it has not changed his perspective. And here's what I would say. This is what unchecked privilege will do to you. It will convince you that you are what you have and that those who don't have what you have are below you. And so even in death, this rich man still thinks of himself as above Lazarus. Hey, Abraham, send Lazarus to serve me, to make me feel better for my condition here. What we see is a person who is so self-absorbed, they think the world revolves around them because of what they have. And in this story, what you know, Jesus so brilliantly does is he provides accountability for a person that maybe has never experienced accountability before. This rich man has lived in luxury. He's got everything you could want. He's oblivious to the people in need around him until he dies. And then all of a sudden, the, the game changes, the, the roles change, and now he's trying to deal with accountability. Now, as I was thinking about this, uh, the, perhaps the only thing we, talk, we like talking less uh, than we like talking about money is accountability. Like none of us are like, I need more accountability in my life. That's what I'm missing, you know? We don't like stories about accountability because we don't like accountability in our own life. You don't like when someone can call you out and go, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And yet as I was thinking about this, I was realizing we are living in an era 
of increased accountability on a scope that we've never seen before. I mean, at any point, you could walk around and someone could videotape you doing something, post it online, and tag you. I mean, you want to talk about accountability everywhere you go. There are cameras watching you. There are people that can hold you accountable. I mean, you go like read about the Wild West and things that they were able to pull off. Never could you do that today because of this increased sense of accountability. Now, most of us, we, we embrace this. We don't really think about what it means, but, but we kind of like it. For example, I don't know about you, but I have one of those um, smart doorbells. You know what these are? where you have a little camera built in the doorbell and has an app on my phone. And so if you ring my doorbell, it sends me a little app and shows me a little video of what's going on. And, and you know, I don't know that it's necessarily uh, needed, but it's, it's fun to have. And, and so most of the time it's like, oh, I have a package or something, you know, and, and, you know or the babysitter's here or whatever. And so, you know, we'll, we'll go to the door. But sometimes if I'm at work, uh, the doorbell will ring and, and let's say we get a package, uh, I'll then see a video of my wife going out on the porch and picking up the package. And a while ago I thought, Let's have some fun with this. So I would take a screenshot of my wife, then I would text it to her, and just to let her know I was watching. <laughs> it sounded like a fun game to play, you know? And, and so she doesn't have the app on her phone, I only have the app, so it's one-sided accountability, which everyone knows is the best accountability, uh, <laughs> when you can hold someone else accountable, and it's so great. And so throughout the day, I would just, you know, send little photos to her, and just to remind her, I'm always watching. And I thought this was a really fun game until the other day. And uh, my, uh, my phone notified me that, you know, someone had to ring the doorbell. And so when I went to watch the video, this is what I found. It's not as fun anymore. Um, it's more fun when it's one-sided, but... But we, we live in this world where we just kind of know, like everybody's watching everybody and you're always being watched. And, and wherever you go, there are cameras, you know, in buildings and, and in hallways. And, and it's just the reality that we live with. But what you got to realize is many of us still haven't come to terms with this. We think there are those areas of our life that, that no camera can see, that nobody will know, that we don't have to answer for. And, and this man lives in that denial. And I would suggest when it comes to our greed, when it comes to our consumerism, that's one of those areas we think no one will ever know, no one will ever see, no one will ever call me out on. No one will ever say that. But this is a story about someone who has allowed this to creep in and now is, is being held to account for it. As one of my favorite theologians, Walter Brueggemann says, we are driven to the ultimate consumerism of consuming each other. You see, when you take that mindset of, I'm just going to consume, and, and, and in our culture today, it's very privatized. Look, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, as long as it's fine with you, this is just for me, my experience, my body, whatever we say, it's always about the individual, and, and we never think about how this is going to affect the community. And what this does is, you think, I can be a consumer, and I can do this in isolation, but when you take a step back and you go, how does this work? What you find is for you to consume means you ultimately are consuming someone else. And if you look at the global inequality of the world, you begin to see how this actually plays out. But even in this story, for the rich man to have all he has, you're gonna have a beggar named Lazarus who suffers because that's the way this works. When you adopt the model of a consumer, you are eventually gonna consume those around you. 
Now, it may be easy to look at this story and go, man, so glad Jesus didn't tell this story about me. So glad I'm not that guy. And the reality is I think we are all the rich man. We are all the rich man, myself included. We all have this ability to allow what we have to creep into who we are. And, and, and this sense of privilege takes over of this is the kind of person that I am. Let, let me ask you, how have you allowed your job title or position to define and shape your identity? I am this person, I am this role. And the bigger the, the title, the, the more important you feel. Or if you have a little prefix in front of your name, like doctor, isn't it amazing how that makes you feel special? You, you feel above everyone else? How have you allowed your salary number to shape your identity? You know, maybe you were for years aiming at that number and then you hit it. And now you think you have arrived. You are the kind of person that is worth that amount. And so you see yourself differently. How have you allowed the school that you go to to shape your identity? Oh, I would never go to that school. I'm not, I'm not that kind of a student. I, I, I go to this school. This is the kind of person that I am. I go to that kind of a school. Everyone knows how the car you drive shapes your identity? I, I feel different about myself when I drive that. And so this can shape how I am. This is an extension of me. I'm the kind of person that drives that kind of a car or the house you live in. You know, this is, this is who I am. That's how much I, I'm worth. That's the kind of house that I live in. All these things and so many more can subtly begin to shape your sense of who you are, of your identity. And you gotta ask this question, who would you be if you lost it? If you lost the job, if you lost the school, if you lost the vehicle, if you lost the house, would it negatively affect your identity? I watch this happen to people all the time because we allow our identity to get wrapped up into things and this is what the rich man is doing. And now for the first time in his life, he's experiencing accountability. It all is removed from him and he has to stare himself in the face and go, who am I really? And even in death, he has no idea who he is because he has not ever wrestled with this. He has left it unchecked. And so you get to verse 27 and he continues his negotiations with Abraham. He answered, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Notice this line. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Incredible dialogue happening here. But again, notice, the rich man continues to expect Lazarus to serve him. Okay, Abraham, Lazarus won't serve me directly. Send him to my family then. He, he owes it to my family. And again, he doesn't ask Lazarus. He asks Abraham to go tell Lazarus what to do. This rich man cannot get over his privilege. He cannot get over his sense of who he is. And he just assumes that things will go on forever, that who he is will go on forever. He is incapable of acknowledging that things are now different. And this is what happens to us in this condition. As Brueggemann goes on to say, the task of prophetic imagination is to cut through the numbness, to penetrate the self-deception, so that the God of endings is confessed as Lord. See, this rich man is numb. He is self-deceived. This is his reality. He cannot see this. And so he cannot embrace a God of endings. He doesn't know how to do that. 
because all he knows is his own reality and he thinks his reality will go on forever. And yet, if you live in this, you're gonna have the same challenge. I'm gonna be numb to the world around me. I'm gonna be self-deceived into my own reality. You will not be able to embrace the God of endings. As I was thinking about this this week, I had this you know, kind of profound thought and it may not seem profound, but I was realizing there will come a day when my ministry will end, when my role as a husband will end, my role as a father will end, when I will be you know, not productive to anybody anymore because I will be dead. And I don't mean that in a morbid sense, just thinking about that. And then I realized Jesus will keep going. The world will keep spinning and Jesus will still do what he's doing and he's been doing and it'll happen without me. And while that could be morbid, I think there's a really healthy part of embracing that and going, you know what? My ending is gonna be a new beginning for Jesus because he's gonna re, you know, keep doing what he's doing with someone else. And this is the way the God of endings works. And yet my own refusal to embrace that, no, I'll always be around, I'll always be able to do this, is my refusal to embrace my limitations and ultimately what God is doing. And this is where we get caught up in the same saga as this rich man. And so notice some of the things that we say that would indicate we can relate with this rich man. We say things like, I'll always be there for you. You ever said that to someone? That's so encouraging to say, I will always be there for you. No, you won't. Like, no, you won't. Like, you just know that you will not always be there for anyone. But we say that, it feels good, it sounds good. It's like, yes, I will always be there for you because we don't know how to embrace our own endings. Or how about this one? I'll make it up to you. Maybe, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Maybe it won't work out that way. And yet we make these promises. I, I, I'll, I'll set that right. You might not ever get to that. Or how about this one, kind of a blanket one. I'll do that when. Yeah, I'll do that when this happens, when that's different, when that changes, when that kicks in, then I'll do that. And we plan out our future as if we have no endings. And what you realize is this is the way that the rich man thought. And maybe he convinced himself, hey, I'll help Lazarus tomorrow. I'll, I'll, when, when I you know, have things a little bit different, then I'll get around to helping Lazarus. And he never gets around to it. And his time runs out because he does not know how to embrace the God of endings. And the point of the story, when you realize his dialogue with Father Abraham, as Jesus tells it, here's how I would summarize the point of the story. If the resurrection of Jesus cannot move you to generosity, nothing will. I mean, this guy's going, look, you know, send someone from the dead. And, and you know, Jesus, spoiler alert, says, hey, I, I, even if someone rises from the dead, that won't even work out. He's forecasting what he's about to do. And, and still he's saying, it won't be enough for your family. If all that they've already received isn't enough, even if someone rises from the dead. And so if you and I who have seen Jesus, we can go, okay, we know that story. We've seen how that story plays out. If that story isn't enough to jolt us out of our own world of self-deception, nothing will. If you can look at God who has come down, has become one of us, has embraced this life, has taken on all that we you know, deserved and we owed, and then has conquered death, has conquered sin, and you go, eh, I'm gonna keep doing my thing. If that is your reality, uh, there's gonna be nothing that can jolt you out of it. And some of us, we go, no, I, I know that story, I like that story. 
And yet we continue to live like the rich man. We continue to go, yeah, that story's great. Let's just keep that out there. Instead of realizing that if that is true, then we follow a God of endings and beginnings. And we are all gonna have an ending. And our reliance on that should cause us to live differently. So why is it that we can so relate with this rich man? Why is it that we keep thinking we have more time? Why are we hesitant to do what we know we might need to do right now when it seems so hard to do? Well, psychologically, there's a term for this. It's called the pain of paying. And what they've realized is in, in actually giving something up that your body, and specifically your brain, equates the same feeling to physical pain. And I don't know if you've ever studied this. I think this is a fascinating concept, and you can look this up, but here's the way one author explains it. Studies using neuroimaging and MRIs have showed that pain indeed stimulates the same brain regions that are involved in processing physical pain. High prices stimulate those brain mechanisms with higher intensity, but it's not just high prices that cause pain. Any price does. There is a pain we all feel when we give up something. And now you may have never realized this, but this is a huge reality when it comes to how you manage what you have, that there is a pain of pain and this shapes the way that you make decisions. Now, let me illustrate this. Let's imagine that you're gonna plan a vacation, okay? And, and so if you think about a vacation, something you know, hopefully we all do at some form or some way, you go, oh, I know what a vacation is. Uh, I want you to imagine different ways that you could take a vacation, right? How could you pay for it? Well, option number one, you could pay for the vacation before you enjoy it. Right? This would be like buying an all-inclusive resort or maybe taking a cruise that you pay for in advance. You, you know the package deal of what you're gonna buy. You buy all up front. You feel the pain of that, like, oh man, this is gonna be expensive. But then you know, I have already bought this. And while you're on the vacation, you just get to enjoy it because you've already got the pain part out of the way. That, that's one option of how to do it. Second option is you can pay while you enjoy it. All right, this is maybe the way a lot of us do it is, is hey, as we go, we'll kind of figure out what things we want and, and we'll make a decision. And, and because this blends the pain with the pleasure, it might cause you to, to do less than you would do in the first one. Because I'm not gonna go to that dinner or we're not gonna go to that event because we kind of gotta manage how much we're spending as we go. And, and you, you, you kind of experience that pain throughout the experience. Or option number three, you can pay after we've enjoyed it. This is the American way, right? <laughs> Put it on a credit card and don't worry about it until you get that you know, bill later and then you can get around to it. And some of you, you're still paying for vacations you took years ago because this is your model. Hey, I'll get around to it later. You're deferring the pain as far away, as far back as you possibly can. And these are three different ways that you can do it. But what you need to acknowledge is that the pain of paying affects each of these experiences. And again, you experience this on a vacation or anything, but you know what it feels like depending on how you decide to do this and how you pay for it. Now, I wanna suggest to you, and maybe this is just my personality, but I think that by prepaying for something, you actually enjoy it more. Now, there's be some studies that would indicate this as well, but, but I, I think this makes some sense. Now, you prepay for a lot of things that you don't necessarily think about. Imagine that you go to a concert. You prepaid for your concert ticket, all right? You, you paid in advance, regardless of what's gonna happen, regardless of you show up, you've already paid for it. But imagine you got to a concert and they said, hey, uh, we're not doing prepayment, we're gonna do pay as you go. And so uh, everyone's gotta fork over $5 for the first song. You listen to that song, you're like, wow, that song was good. And then they go, all right, who wants to stick around for the second song? And you get your wallet back out 
and everybody puts five more dollars in. And every song that you gotta keep paying. Now, how much of that would change the experience of a concert? Now, you'd be you know, managing going, Ugh, how much do I really like these guys? Do I wanna leave? You know, am I getting tired? Are they, are they getting tired up there? I mean, the whole thing would be a different experience because you're evaluating the pain as you go rather than prepaying it. Or imagine if you uh, are reading a book. Now, I love reading books, uh, but you prepay a book regardless of whether you read that book or not. But imagine you read chapter one and then uh, to get chapter two, you had to pay another dollar. And then to get chapter three, you had to pay another dollar. Some of you would read even less than you read right now, right? Because you're like, I'm not, that, there's way too much pain involved to finish this book. I, I'm just not gonna do it. It would change the experience. Now, marketers know this, and so they play to this to their own advantages. Anybody use Amazon? Anyone use Amazon Prime? Oh yeah, for one low rate of $119, you get free shipping for the year. What is this? You're prepaying shipping. You pay one time, you get the pain out of the way, and you go, oh, can't believe I'm doing this again this year. But then it's just glorious for the rest of the year. And you're like, I don't pay anything on shipping. This is amazing. I get free shipping, right? You don't get free shipping. You already paid for shipping, but your brain tells you that pain is so far away, I just get to enjoy it now. Now, again, this is something to think through. When you pay for something shapes your experience with it. Now, with that in mind, let me ask you this question. Does generosity happen best in advance, during, or after? If we bring these ideas together, okay, there's a pain associated anytime you give something up, which, you know, if you're thinking about what generosity means, it is giving something up, especially when it's sacrificial generosity. So if there is a physical pain that your brain is gonna associate with that, is it best? What's the best condition for generosity? In advance? during, or after. So here's what I would suggest, that it works the same way, but what I have seen most people do is when it comes to generosity, we approach it like we do a credit card. And so we say things like this, and I hear a version of this all the time. I'll be generous after I have more to give. Ever said that? Ever thought that in some form? Yeah, when this is met, when this condition is met, then I'm planning on being really generous. And you can have any qualifier for that. But I hear these qualifiers all the time. I'll be more generous after. And the key word being after, because what you're doing is you're delaying pain. You are pushing the pain of, of that generosity later and later, and you're going, someday I'll get around to that pain, but I don't wanna feel that pain right now. And it's the same way the rich man thought. Like I can get around to that later, I can keep doing what I'm doing. But you are not guaranteed an after. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. There's no guarantee we have that we can get around to this great plan that we have. And so the pain of paying can keep you from ever being a generous person. And so what I'd like to suggest to you, uh, just like a vacation, I think the best conditions, if you want to be a generous person, is to prepay your generosity. To decide in advance, this is what I'm going to reserve for kingdom purposes. I will not take it. And I will set up in advance before I know what's going to happen in my month. 
Now, the way my family does it is we have prayed about a percentage that we give to the church. If you were here two weeks ago, I said that it's more than a tithe. We have figured out what percentage we give. We increase it every year. And then that automatically goes to the church, automatically deducted from my paycheck. I never get the money. I have decided in advance to prepay my generosity, which means it doesn't matter if we have a tight month or a good month or whatever. I know that that generosity is already gonna be, you know, it's already gonna be in place because I have set it up in advance, which is good because there are some months that get tough. Just this last month alone, we had two kid surgeries, okay? That's the one month we'd be like, you know what, maybe we, no, all my generosity has already come out of the account. It doesn't matter how tight we are. We've already decided to do this in advance. And so this is what we have figured out for our family to go, this is how we begin a journey of generosity. Now I've explained this before, but I think if you wanna figure out what is important to you, automate it. This is true when all your money, automate what's important. You wanna have a savings account, automate it. You wanna have a retirement account, automate it. You wanna have a vacation account, automate it. Get it automatically taken out so you decide to put the painful part at the beginning and that will increase your likelihood of doing the things that are important to you. If generosity is important to you, automate it. Figure out a way in advance. Now, what you're doing is you're getting the pain of that out of the way. But here's what you'll notice. When you get over the pain of paying when it comes to generosity, it's not like a credit card. It's not like paying off a vacation because what immediately follows is joy. Now, the reality is most people never get to the joy because to get to the joy, you gotta get over the pain. And we assume that this pain, because it feels like the same pain as my vacation, you just assume it's always gonna feel the same. But when you have a pain of pain because of generosity, what begins as a pain turns into a joy. And then you realize I can keep going. I, I, I can keep experiencing this because you're not lingering in the pain, you're, you're lingering in the joy of it. And so for our family, we decided in advance, we're gonna pick a percentage, that painful part, we're gonna get over it. Now we experience the joy of that, but now we're open to seeing needs around us and I navigate the pain of that as we go. And so if I hear some new opportunity, I'm like, hey, God, do you want us to do something like that? And again, right with that is the pain of that to go, I gotta get over the pain of that. I gotta get over the pain of that. But I'm not doing that on all of my generosity. The parts that I can put up front, I'm putting up front, and then I navigate that conversation as we go. And I, I know of no other way to do this. Now, here's what you've got to decide. As you listen to this, um, this can be just a great story that Jesus told and you go, man, that, that was really cool. I like those characters that Jesus made up. That, that was really cool. Let's go have lunch. And you can go home and you can be none the different for it. Or you can say, you know what? I think there's something there. And I think I could easily be that rich man. And then if I don't do something to combat that, I could easily be the person in this story. And so I, I wanna take a step forward to not be that person. And if that's you, I'm gonna give you a challenge this week uh, that every single one of us can do. And it's a very simple, very practical challenge. Here's my challenge for you this week. Would you consider beginning automated recurring giving? Okay, I've talked about this before. This is the best tool that I know of to, to uh, begin a journey of generosity between you and God. And automated recurring giving is an amount you decide, a percentage or whatever, however you do it. You pray about a number, you set it up. We have an incredible tool called PushPay. You can set it up one time and literally, this will take you five minutes. You put your bank account in, you pick your amount, whatever, you can change it at any point, but you set it up and then you every two weeks or every month, depending on how you wanna do it, you have an automatic amount sent to the church. And this is prepaying your generosity. You're deciding in advance before you know what's gonna do. And this has been the single greatest tool for my heart. 
to go, it's not my money. I'm gonna put it to kingdom use. And before I ever see it, I've already committed it to kingdom purposes. And I would encourage every single one of you to do this. Now, here's what I believe. I believe generosity leads to generosity. This is true individually and corporately. When you taste generosity, when you get over the pain of it, and then you experience the joy of it, you want more of it. And you go, wow, that was cool. I wanna get more of that joy. And so you try to battle through the pain again to get back over to the joy. But I also think it's true of a community that when you see people around you being generous, you go, oh, I want some of that. I wanna be generous too. And we can encourage one another. It's one of the most beautiful roles of a church community that in community together, as we do life together, we encourage one another on the generosity. So here's the deal. We're gonna try something that we've not done before uh, and we'll see if this is a good idea or, or not. Uh, but we're gonna try something this week that I, I, I'm excited about. Uh, we are going to uh, basically take a step forward with you if you'll take a step forward with us. So here's the deal. If you begin automated recurring giving through PushPay this week, if you decide I'm gonna take a step forward, any amount you do, we will send you an email and we'll ask you for a nonprofit of your choice that we will send a check this week to, for $100. Okay, so you decide, I'm gonna take a step forward. We'll decide as a church, we'll take a step forward with you. You tell us a, a, a nonprofit that's doing kingdom work. And we go, look, it doesn't have to be Christian. As long as it's doing kingdom work, we go, like, that, that's a cool thing. We will send a check to them for $100 this week because you took a step forward in generosity. I can't think of a cooler way than a bunch of nonprofits this week getting random checks from a church and going, what on earth is happening? Why is this church sending us checks? And the answer could be, oh, because someone who loves your organization attends our church and they took a step forward in generosity. What, what a cool statement to make to our community. So go, you know what? We wanna be about kingdom impact. And if you'll take a step forward, we'll take a step forward as a church. And go, all right, you, you, you tell us. And, and so here's the deal. You, you sign up on PushPay this week. You go, all right, any amount, I'm gonna set this up to automated recurring giving. We'll send you an email and we'll ask you for the details. I mean, you can send us and then we will send them a check. And, and hopefully there's a bunch of generosity stories that will begin to come out of this as people realize, wow, we have a lot and we can do a lot when we realize that all we have has been given to us, not just for our enjoyment, but to literally shape the world around us. And so I wanna encourage you to do that. If you're like going, hey, I'm interested, but I don't know how to do that, go to Starting Point, any of our campuses uh, out, uh, outside here. Uh, you can give a, get a little card. They will help you figure that out. Uh, they will walk you through it if you don't know how to do it. And, and we will help you use this tool in this way. And I think you're gonna be amazed at what happens. Now, one note on this. I get asked this question a lot. Do I have to give my, my giving to the church or can I give it elsewhere? Here's the deal. Here's my take on this, okay? And you can have your own take. Here's my take. If you are part of the local church, and newsflash, you look around, you are part of the local church. If you are part of the local church, I believe your generosity starts with the local church. Now, here's the reality. We tend to think the church is the staff. It's the pastors who are paid to do this. No, no, no. We are the church. We do the ministry of the church. And so if you really begin to believe this and go, no, I am a part of this, then I believe you start your generosity with the church. The church should get the first and the most of it. And so this is how my family does it. We pray about our percentage. We give it to the church automatically. Then we have picked a number of other places where our generosity goes. But that is in addition to what we see in the church because I believe that the church is uniquely equipped to be the hands and the feet of Jesus unlike anything else the world has ever seen. And so if you believe that too, we're gonna to invite you, start your generosity there and then go wherever you want with it. Keep building onto it, but I believe it should start there. Now let me close with a quote that hopefully encourages you like it's encouraged me. 
come from Alan Watts. You're under no obligation to be the same person you were five minutes ago. Why do I say that? You might be sitting here going, well, Jeremy, I'm not a generous person. That's not who I am. Would you wanna be? Would you like to be a generous person? Do you like your current reality of how things are playing out? Do you think the way you're spending money is the right way? Because if you're going, you know what? I got some room for growth here. Guess what? You don't have to be the same person that you were five minutes ago. And, and, and how could five minutes of your time just take a step forward in generosity? Again, you setting up automated giving doesn't make you a generous person by default. It is an incredible step in the right direction. And you will notice what it will do to your heart more than anything else. You go, wow, this is good. This is softening me for what God wants to do. But what could five minutes do? You go, I, I wanna be a generous person. I wanna be the kind of person that Jesus would tell a good story about, that someone who gets it, who understands this reality. How could five minutes have changed this rich man's life if he would have just opened his eyes to see the beggar right in front of him? If he would have realized all that he had and, and went, you know what, I don't need all this and this does not define me and it easily is starting to do that and so I'm going to use it for others. How would that have changed his life? How would just five minutes have changed Lazarus's life if someone had come alongside him and seen him and realized he's a person and listened to his story and seen his suffering and had been willing to do something about it? See, we don't have to be the same person we were, but I think all it takes is a step forward to go, God, I don't wanna go down this road and, and hopefully you can see yourself in the rich man like I can see myself in the rich man. And so to that, we go, God, keep us from that road. Help me to see all that I have is yours. You've entrusted it to me and some of the worst things that I could do with it is to begin to assume that it is who I am. And the way you break the hold on that is by releasing it back to him and trusting it to God. And what would God do with a community with open hands that said, God, this is all your stuff. We wanna see life changed as a result. I wanna be a part of a church like that. Let's pray together. Jesus, we invite you to, to speak to us, to challenge us, to move us. Help us to see ourselves in this story. See how we can easily think of ourselves as what we have. We can find our identity there so easily. And yet you're inviting us out of the numbness to see the world around us. And so, God, we wanna repent and confess any unchecked privilege in our life where we have allowed our thinking to, to believe that it has defined us. And we wanna live differently. We wanna live surrendered to you, acknowledging this is just stuff that you have entrusted to us. And if we allow it to define us, we're gonna make some really stupid decisions. So may you inspire us and encourage us as a church community, wherever we are, to see those around us, to begin taking steps forward, to prepay our generosity and not just think that we'll get around to it someday, but to be open to the opportunities in front of us in the moments that we have before us right now. May we be faithful to what you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.